we must admit that we do not have the situation under control. I wanted to act as if the house was on fire. Because it is. Welcome to the world we want. Youth voices on climate and health. My name is Jonathan Foster. And in this second series, we continue meeting some of the world's most engaging and thought-provoking youth activists. We get their views not only on the reality of our current environmental and health crises, but also about the possibilities, alternatives and ideas for transformation and change. We find out what youth activists are thinking and doing, and we find out what you could do to help build the world we want. We must stop playing with words and numbers because we no longer have time. Hello. On this episode, we have a dedicated doctor from Morocco, Dr. Saad Oakas. Besides being a hard-working medical doctor, he is the North Africa coordinator of the African Youth Initiative for Climate Change, as well as the coordinator for the first-ever Children and Youth Pavilion at COP27. Assad is the winner of the 2021 Diana Award because of his efforts as a then-medical student to co-organise medical caravans that provided healthcare, services and education to over 25,000 people in rural communities. Now, during our conversation, we talk about his views on COP27, about pushing for change and what is it that we're pushing against. We talked about involving people on the ground and the link between personal health and global health and why people find making this link so difficult. We talk about the readiness of the future health systems to deal with oncoming crisis and we talk a little bit about the future. But first... Over this series of podcasts, I have had some really inspiring youth leaders who have spoken about crucial social, political and economic challenges, things that need immediate action. Now, every one of these youth leaders has stated in a clear and unequivocal manner the importance of you, dear listener. You are the key to a better and fairer future. Let me put it like this. Today, around the world, there is an enormous amount of power in the hands of a tiny minority of people. As Oxfam revealed in 2022, the world's 10 richest men more than doubled their fortunes from $700 billion to $1.5 trillion during the first two years of the COVID-19 pandemic. I guess we weren't all in it together. Anyway, while these 10 men increased their wealth at a rate of $1.3 billion a day, according to Oxfam, the incomes of 99% of humanity fell and over 160 million more people were forced into poverty. Something about our current values and principles is horribly, terribly wrong. So, 
what can we do? Well, let's imagine for a moment that the world is an old man, a patriarch. <laughs> now, that's not too difficult, really, is it? <laughs> now, this old man, our world, has grown sick and is dying because the values and principles that he has lived by have caused an illness and he's ended up very sick. So, we are at a crucial period. If we want to get better and not suffer the same fate, we need to change the way we live. Now, the story we've been told for decades, if not centuries, is that there is no alternative. But this story has led our world to its deathbed. Well, now that we realise that we cannot go on the way that we have been, there will be a kind of power ideas vacuum. And all kinds of ideas will be put forth to fill that vacuum. Now, a great deal of these ideas will not prioritise the Earth and its life support systems. Instead, they will be based on the values and principles that are causing our problems in the first place. There will be ideas from people who do not have the Earth and its life support system's best interests at heart. So, we need to raise our voices in support of ideas and values and principles that keep us within the social and planetary boundaries of the Earth's life-supporting systems. We need to make sure that all of us share in life's essentials, from food and housing to health care and, importantly, having a political voice. What we do not need is to leave the fate of humanity in the hands of a few billionaires whose values and principles have brought us the multi-crisis we are now experiencing. So what can you do? Well, like all the youth leaders on this podcast have said, you could start by educating yourself. So I suggest you go to the website donuteconomics.org that's donuteconomics.org, where you'll find information about Kate Rayworth's Donut Economics Model, which is a holistic approach to planetary and human well-being that challenges the perpetual growth model that has brought this sickness upon the Earth, and instead offers a vision of what it means for humanity to thrive in the 21st century. And of course, you can go to www.pmac2023.com to find out more about the upcoming PMAC conference to be held on the 24th to the 29th of January 2023 in Bangkok, Thailand. Okay, now let's hear my interview with Dr. Said Uakis from Morocco. <laughs> Uh, great to be here today. Uh, my name is uh, Dr. Sadwakas, and I am the North Africa coordinator of the African Youth Initiative for Climate Change, as well as uh, the coordinator of the first ever uh, Children and Youth Pavilion at the COP27. Uh, so, uh, yeah, good to be here. Hi, Syed. It's, uh, it's wonderful to have you here. Um, great to see you. Listen, let's get straight into it. Uh, you mentioned COP27 just then. Uh, that's over now. You've got back to Morocco. How do you feel? How do you think it went? 
for me, COP was a unique experience. It has been my third one so far. And what has been special for me is that for the first time, we managed as young people to uh, make a space for ourselves. Uh, we created this uh, pavilion for the first time ever. People had uh, a refuge, a home uh, space for them to you know, feel safe, gather, network, do sessions themselves, make stuff happen. Uh, we had ministers on high level attend and come to young people. So it was a very rewarding uh, journey. Uh, I was mainly focused on the, the pavilion, so I haven't been much to the negotiations. From what I uh, heard or been able to follow, the negotiation outcomes weren't uh, optimal and up to the expectations when it comes to you know, raising the, the expectations for mitigation and also uh, having more commitments from, from countries. So that wasn't the case. Unfortunately, we had an interesting, you know, advancement with the loss and damage. So that was okay. Uh, good for some people. What was also good for me is that we had four paragraphs uh, on young people. So a recognition of the uh, Children Youth Pavilion and the call for future presidency to organize it. Also, the fact that we had the youth envoy also recognized in the final outcome. We had, you know, a call for countries to include young people as negotiators and uh, involve them more. So that was, you know, a good outcome for me as a young advocate so that in the future, there'll be more and more, uh, you know, uh, ways for us and uh, tools for us to push for countries for youth engagement. So that was a good outcome for me. So uh, to sum up COP, it was inspiring. All the young people there, the energy, the you know motivation you see in other people's eyes, uh, being surrounded by them every day. So that was a lot of energy, a lot of inspiration, and yeah, a lot of hope, especially because you see those young people who are motivated to change the world. So uh, it's, it's infectious. Well, um, it's excellent that there is more youth involvement at the COPs, that's for sure. Uh, but one thing that concerns me still is the speed of change. Uh, we have so little time to get things right. So my question is, how do you think organizations or conferences like COP are actually doing, considering the time frame we have to make the changes we need to make? Yeah, it's not promising, right? It's not promising when you talk about, you know, the, the time that we have now, uh, yeah, we had a panel the other day with the Minister of Maldives and she was talking how, you know, if we reach two degrees, uh, two big sheets of ice will be melting and Maldives will simply disappear from, from the map. And, uh, you know, just listening to that kind of, you know, hits you hard. And I guess the, the problem is, uh, OK, people are aware of this now. Now they know that there are people who are suffering from loss and damage. They are trying to help somehow. Uh, the commitment is still not there uh, or enough commitment is still lacking. And uh, sometimes, you know, as young people, you are trying to do things on your scale, whatever, and you feel a bit disappointed. Some people feel depressed. Some people feel sad and everything. Uh, so uh, it's, it's, not, it's not very uh, optimal uh, thinking about the, the current situation. I guess what we can do about it is at least start from ourselves do what we can do, unite ourselves, and then start pushing uh, both locally and nationally by kind of uh, advocating and trying to make our uh, government holding them accountable as well as the private sector to push for uh, local and national change, local policy, 
and then trying to lead campaigns in collaboration with different stakeholders on the national level, while globally, of course, uh, our role to advance with those negotiations uh, is, is a bit challenging. So we need to be organized there. We need to be organized in the sense of if you have a group of young people who are able to make it to the negotiation rooms on behalf of their or, or, or on behalf of their governments, that's first. Uh, another group also, as we always do with civil society, to keep pushing from civil society perspectives. And then together, if we are able to lead that momentum and then infiltrate our country's negotiator uh, space, then we can, you know, maybe together mobilize and make for more uh, bolder commitments. So that's that's one way uh, in which I see we can, you know, uh, at least uh, do a role in moving things forward. Uh, while we, of course, look at the, the, all the slow negotiations that are there. Uh, and of course, if we don't not do anything about it, it's going to stay as it is or it's going to move slowly. So, yeah, uh, it's better to try to at least try to keep pushing uh, as much as we as we can. Well, you brought up some really fascinating things, um, mental health, physical health issues, and I'd like to come to those a little bit later. Uh, but first, a couple of episodes ago, I had Omnia El Omrani on the pod, who I imagine you know, and she was talking about pushing for change. And I wonder, in your mind side, what is it that's pushing back? Why are we having to push so much? What's the force that we're pushing against? Yeah, good reflection. I guess uh, we, we're pushing against ourselves as humans when we talk about human greed, when we talk about, you know, different stakeholders trying to prioritize their personal benefits or their uh, kind of uh, group benefits. So either being it private sector that's not ready enough to make that transition uh, because of, you know, wanting to still benefit and make uh, economic and financial profits, uh, I mean, the transition will be there sooner or later, right? Uh, we're talking about a global transition now, and even the private sector is urged to kind of make that transition. Uh, of course, uh, not all the private sector uh, companies are uh, convinced or ready enough to make that uh, transition uh, fast enough. You know, most of them mainly want to still benefit from fossil fuels or from whatever polluting activity they are doing. So it's, it's not that of a priority for them. So it's, it's going to take a while. And as you said, if we wait for them to make that transition uh, slowly, yeah, it, it, it wouldn't work. Time, time and math don't, don't uh, match up. So that's one. Uh, same thing, I would say, for uh, governments. Of course, you have many governments which uh, kind of uh, economies and uh, depend on those fossil fuels and those, you know, uh, polluting activities and their economies. Uh, maybe some governments, of course, have logistical uh, and capacity issues. We're talking about uh, middle-income countries who are kind of more or less polluting. And, uh, of course, the transition should come uh, gradually. And also, they would need more resources to kind of make that transition. So, again, a problem of equity and resources and supporting such countries with resources to make that transition, right? So, yeah, you can't expect uh, the country to just bring the resources out of nowhere to uh, commit and make environments a priority and everything. And th th that's the argument that many countries keep saying, either in the Asian or the 
uh, African uh, space saying that, of course, development is the priority, feeding people is the priority. So uh, again, reflecting on this on the global level, some countries have the resources, some countries don't. So it's really important to uh, talk about climate finance, talk about all those funds to uh, enable those countries to, uh, you know, uh, catch up. That's the word, to catch up. So, yeah, we're talking about climate justice here and holding uh, richer countries accountable, holding uh, also, uh, you know, colonial countries who have caused in a way in the past, if you track uh, kind of how uh, certain development uh, situations has been affected by different uh, kind of uh, colonial situations in the past. So also that's one of the factors. So that's, you know, when we talk about climate equity and geopolitical uh, issues, when it comes to rich countries who have the capacity to transition and that are reluctant to make that transition, uh, I guess we're talking here about political will, uh, personal benefits for the country itself, trying to, you know, preserve its benefits as well, uh, which is also unfortunate. So again, uh, we need more pressure there when it comes to national stakeholders, uh, both from uh, the civil society themselves and the national level, and also from other countries to hold those rich countries accountable, because we talk about rich countries who have the capacity to transition and who are currently doing high emissions of uh, CO2 and different uh, polluting gases. So those should be held accountable by different uh, other countries and by uh, people on the national level, so that you know more and more pressure should be put. And also we're talking about people recognizing that uh, climate is a priority, right? Because politicians, in a way, are also a reflection of the public opinion and the public sphere. So if we manage to get the public opinion to trust that our kids' safety, health, well-being is the priority instead of, you know, living in a wealthy lifestyle that we see it as wealthy or benefit, like, uh, you know, privileged lifestyle. So that changes the public opinion and that reflects on what kind of demands and priorities are on uh, policymakers and uh, our representatives in the decision-making space. Okay, brilliant. I mean, you bring up an enormous amount of things that are really interesting, many different threads to pull. Um, but let me ask you this one. Uh, on the previous episode, I spoke to Benita Kayembe, um, and she was talking about qualitative research, which involves uh, local populations on the ground, real people who are actually affected by climate change or the health crisis or any of the other global uh, problems. And much of the conversation around crises has this assumption that solutions should be always top down, right? I mean, we fly in, we solve problems, we fly out again. It's almost a colonial mindset, you could say. Um, what are your feelings on this? What are your feelings about the way solutions are being thought about and organized? Uh, you see, something I learned personally, and of course I'm from a medical background as well, and I had to make this transition, is that uh, climate and environmental crisis is a, a global one, is an existential one, and everyone has a role to play in it, and every sector uh, and program and uh, area of work should have considerations for, for, for climate, right? When I was doing my master's in public health, we were talking about health in all policies, social determinants of health, and how health, you know, different sectors should come together to consider health in their work. It's the same thing for climate. So uh, it's important 
for all the different stakeholders to have this uh, notion of environment, of climate, of uh, that sectors are linked together and how can we, uh, you know, uh, prioritize and consider climate and environmental uh, aspects in our uh, development, in our urbanism, in our, uh, you know, lifestyle uh, kind of decisions and programs and uh, initiatives. So that's one, making sure that, okay, uh, when we're talking about the local level, uh, that the development initiatives or the infrastructure or the way we are uh, offering services to the local communities, uh, of course, are inclusive and are uh, preserving their uh, environment. And uh, when we talk about uh, a whole society approach or uh, also something that's good about SDGs is that, you know, they are interlinked. So if you want to make decisions or programs that are beneficial for the environment, it means that you should uh, address the community as uh, kind of, uh, you know, not only a beneficiary, but as a main stakeholder, right? So getting there with the local community, providing services that are, uh, you know, uh, prioritizing their well-being and their local expertise and their local culture. And based on that local culture, and you, you will be developing the right program that will serve their culture. And that's one of the main ways that, that you know, we're talking about local indigenous expertise and knowledge uh, as a tool to preserve the, the environment. So uh, being there with those local populations, prioritizing their well-being and their needs, and how development should not jeopardize the, the, the local uh, kind of preservation of, of the environment. So making harmony between development and local uh, environmental preservation is one uh, side of the coin. And then the second side of the coin is making sure we are working uh, the advocacy uh, side of things. That's why I talked about making sure we are in the decision-making table, uh, putting the policy pressure on different stakeholders to hold them accountable, to advance with the discussions both nationally and globally so that we can hold the decision-makers and the private sector accountable. Uh, because when you think about decision-making, private sector, and decision makers, politicians are the main ones that if you convince, you can get a big return on investment, right? So we need them to be there, like local actions, local initiatives, local innovations, uh, social entrepreneurship, all those youth-led uh, solutions, local solutions are important, are essential. Uh, and then in parallel, we should work with politicians and uh, private sector to hold them accountable and also to help them become leaders of change. If you are able to get the private sector to become leader of change, they have expertise, they have potential, they have resources. So if you convince them to be there, to walk the talk with you, uh, that, then ma magic will happen uh, and we will be able to walk together. I mean, that sounds wonderful. You were mentioning all kinds of things again, <laughs> accountability, power distributions. I'd like to come back a little later to the relationship between climate and health that you mentioned. But first, why don't you tell me a little bit about your journey to becoming a doctor and becoming an activist? Yeah, I guess it started, I guess, nine or 10 years ago when I first decided to go uh, pursue the medical career. And then, yeah, medical school was one of the, the most life-changing experiences in my life. I've been there 
uh, and at the same time, when I was a medical student, uh, I joined different NGOs and I started, you know, getting uh, and grabbing interests of making impacts and wanted to make change. So NGOs was a, was a good start for me. Uh, I was there in the student council of my of my university at that time when we had uh, a whole movement, advocacy movement as students uh, uniting together and wanting to improve the situation for, for medical students at that time, which worked out very well. I joined the, the National Medical Student Association, which introduced me to IFMSA, which is the International Federation of Medical Students Association. And uh, within that global space, uh, I had the chance to uh, get introduced to the public health and the global health uh, area or world. So I was there attending global events with WHO, uh, global uh, medical student general assemblies, interacting with other young people that are there uh, in the world, you know, learning what's going on in different uh, areas, what are the problems, public health issues that medical students are tackling here and there. So I started getting inspired. I started, for example, implementing issues related to antimicrobial resistance in Morocco, in organ donation. I worked on organ and blood donation. So I started leading and creating campaigns, right? And uh, then I also started uh, seeing a potential that I had uh, on the global level. So I occupied leadership positions, like I was the program coordinator on uh, blood and organ donation in 2017. I was the one coordinating what medical students were doing on, on donation at that time and leading a blood donation campaign. And then a year after, I was uh, coordinating external affairs and partnership work in the MENA region uh, in IFMSA. And after that, I was the, the liaison officer to student organizations. So I found myself uh, coordinating between 1.4 me million medical students and all other youth organizations globally. Then, uh, I, uh, then COVID happened and uh, along with Omnia, we were the ones uh, coordinating the global uh, COVID campaign of, of IFMSA, which was uh, life changing. So it, it, was, it was very, very intense at that time and very, very uh, eye opening when you see you know, young medical students doing action, you motivates you to keep pushing a responsibility to, you know, keep uh, sharing, empowering, supporting medical students all out there, voicing their concerns, speaking on their behalf. And yeah, so that was when I graduated as a medical student. And also the second responsibility I feel as a health professional is that, you know, young people, uh, you have a big potential there. So it's really important to empower them when it comes to the relation between climate and health and show them how they can become advocates when it comes to the health co-benefits and how they can use the health argument to lead their, their climate awareness and climate uh, advocacy campaigns. So that's definitely something I'm looking forward to uh, pushing, at least in the African level, uh, and making sure young people are leaders when it comes to the climate and health agenda. Uh, you mentioned there the inability or the difficulty people have in recognising uh, personal health and global health are linked. Why is this? Why why is it so hard to understand? Uh, you know, sometimes uh, we as 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 uh, people in general, we we get caught with life. Like we we're living life. We're looking at how can we uh, be at ease. How can we take care of our well being? Making sure our children have good food, good shelter, enough money to live. So. Uh, such attitude which uh, pushes us to yeah look at uh, ourselves mainly and then uh, this attitude sometimes 
blinds us from looking at all the external factors that are influencing us and that are affecting us. So we're talking about the social determinants of health. We're talking about uh, ecological determinants of health, political determinants of health. And that's when uh, you need to talk to people and make them think that they are part of a community. They are part of a bigger space, both locally or globally, that uh, and factors that are affecting uh, th their well-being, their economic uh, well-being. We're not only talking about health here, uh, so their social well-being as well. So when you have this conversation with people, you tell them about the different factors that are affecting them and how those factors are, you know, affecting their well-being in a way we're talking about, for example, the biggest example today is climate change, right? So it is a global crisis. Uh, maybe I'm responsible on climate change. Uh, I'm polluting in a way, but I'm 0.0001 uh, compared to, you know, a big fossil fuel company or a stakeholder. So, uh, but this, this crisis or this global problem is affecting my well-being, is affecting uh, me as a farmer, let's say, and my yield, so my economic well-being is affected. My uh, social well-being is affected because I'll be losing my land and I'll be migrating. Uh, my health well-being will be affected because more infections and more pollution and more uh, NCDs will be there. So uh, also my kids will not live in a, in a good environment which will uh, be good for their bodies. So all those uh, challenges for their well-being so that's an example how uh, those global issues we're talking about antimicrobial resistance, One Health, we're talking about, you know, how affecting or getting into forests and interactions with wild animals will affect, you know, increase maybe the infectious disease rate. We're talking about how uh, the industries also affect our health in a way or another. The way, the way, the, the place where we work as young people or as uh, adults in general affects our well-being. So th those reflections and uh, the, the second challenge is uh, making sure people uh, have priorities in their life. You know, that's our argument as public health professionals. You should make public health, you should make your health as the priority. Whatever place you work in, whatever lifestyle you are adopting, whatever investment you are making, make sure your health is the priority because it's a long-term investment. You don't see the results right now. You see the results long-term. It's the same thing for environment. So make sure your uh, health is the priority. Make sure your kids' health is the priority and make sure your environment is the priority because it will preserve your kids' well-being. So if we are able to make that argument a priority, uh, young people, uh, adults, families will start shifting their lifestyle. They will start uh, changing and making decisions on where they work, uh, what they invest in, what they buy, what lifestyle they do. And the same thing for private sector and the same thing for uh, decision makers that health is the priority, well-being is the priority, uh, environment is the priority. So let us make the decisions that will not bring us short-term uh, good economic benefits, but will give us benefits and safety for our well-being uh, on the long term and and how do you think we're doing in that in respect in that respect uh, long-term thinking because what we do today makes all the difference to tomorrow right so if we're planning now for future public health systems are we taking into account the reality of the climate and health crisis are we basing our future predictions on a realistic understanding you know, what, what's your feeling of how we're doing? 
uh, I, I guess a main feeling is uh, the challenge here is uh, we're not working together. Uh, if we want to make this happen, we, we need to work together, right? So we need to join hands, uh, and because it's it's uh, it's not something you can only do as a health professional or as a climate uh, professional. You need all groups of people to come together to join your cause and to believe in what you are saying so that, for example, the communication people will lead the way for you, will support you, and will adopt your, your messaging. Uh, business people will do the same. So uh, the fact that we're not working together enough is, is a challenge, I, I would say. We are late there. So it's important for us to get different people to work together and so that we can have the same fight uh, and we can, you know, uh, accelerate our momentum and uh, be able to use our uh, collective intelligence and expertise to make that happen. So that's that's a big one uh, to shorten the, 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 the time that we have. Uh, another thing, I guess, uh, that we are not doing and that we can uh, optimize is uh, uh, considering local perspectives and then, you know, uh, considering the people and that, that, that's something that, you know, uh, again, like uh, global stakeholders, uh, policymakers and the private sector, they need to harmonize their whatever economic benefits and decision they make with what is the priority and what is the need and what is the, the, the best for people who are in the local level, the vulnerable populations and the vulnerable groups. And, uh, okay, so moving forward, we've only got a couple of minutes left, Saad. So um, looking to the future, how do you see the world of the future? If we do well today, what kind of a world are we going to enter? Uh, well, well, yeah, that's that's a tricky question. What, what, what would the future look like, right? You know, all those uh, disasters that we, we have now, uh, all this uh, technology and development that's there. Um, uh, yeah, are we looking at a positive or a negative uh, image of, of the future? One thing is for sure, you see, uh, is that we do have the potential to make things happen. Uh, and the resources uh, can really shift things uh, in, a, in a very uh, speedy way. We are in a race uh, against ourselves. We are in a race. The sad reality is that uh, it's not reversible uh, anymore. The damages are there. Uh, the lives will be lost. The disasters will continue to happen. So it's about how fast are we able to catch up. So it's better for us to uh, become accustomed to that reality, to try as much as we can to provide alternatives, to provide you know solutions so that we can you know try to reduce... Uh, those disasters and negative outcomes and try to save as much lives as we can. Now lives are lost, so let us let us be, uh, you know, recognizing this harmony, this reality, unfortunately, and try our best to, you know, kind of uh, save the damage, minimize the damage. That's, that's where we are now. Thank you so much, Syed. Listen, we've run out of time. I'd love to ask you more questions, but... Thank you so much for your views. It's been a real pleasure hearing from you. Uh, th thanks very much for the for the interview. Those were some, uh, you know, good uh, reflections. Uh, thank you very much. So there you go. Thanks to Dr. Said Uakis for his brilliant commitment to the health and environmental cause. 
and fighting for climate and health justice for all. Until next time, thanks for listening. We must stop playing with words and numbers because we no longer have time. This podcast was brought to you by the Prince Mahadon Award Conference and Jonathan Foster of Foster Media in collaboration with the Swedish Institute for Global Health Transformation, FHI360, the World Health Organization, the British Medical Journal and USAID.